Um, it's good to be back. I, uh, for those of you who don't know, I was uh, on vacation uh, for the last two and a half weeks or so, and then was able to catch a conference on the end of that. Uh, it's wonderful to be back here at New Hope, especially, I can say that, having visited three other churches while I was away. Uh, one of the things that I'm going to be talking about at our family meeting on the 10th is some of the things I learned from that experience of visiting uh, other churches. Um, uh, Ron Lingenfelter may have finally convinced me of something he's been trying to convince me of for, for many years now, but uh, I'll leave you to uh, wonder what that is. Um, so we're in a series this summer called I Do Not Think That Verse Means What You Think It Means. And I have, uh, for, for quite a while now, been looking forward to, to doing this, this series. There are some verses in the Bible that are just so frequently abused that it can be, um, well, funny sometimes when you see it, but then there can be some really tragic and, uh, and toxic results of this kind of, of abuse. And the, the verse we have today is, is one of the most frequently abused verses in a political context. Now, uh, we started the series with Mike Batley, uh, with the Genesis passage that is also frequently abused in a political context. Mike talked about the, uh, the verse, uh, Am I my brother's keeper? Which is often abused by folks on the left who will say, uh, See, the Bible says we are our brother's keeper. No, it doesn't. <clears throat> the Bible has somebody say, What am I? His babysitter? Of another adult. And of course the answer is, No, of course you're not his babysitter, Cain, but you weren't supposed to murder the guy either. Uh, well, here is a verse that is often abused by people on the right. And I mentioned this conference. I was at, at this conference in Asheville, North Carolina, at the Billy Graham Training Center. Uh, and the decor of the Billy Graham Training Center looks like the front part of every Christian bookstore you have been in. I have never seen so many uh, needle-pointed verses from the Bible all over the walls everywhere uh, and coming into the building uh, we were staying in was, in fact, this very verse, Second Chronicles 7.14, which reads, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. How many times have you heard or seen this verse thrown around in the context specifically of people on the religious right who will say, see, this is what God promises, that if his people who are called by his name will humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Isn't that lovely and comforting? Um, well, no, it probably shouldn't be. Because uh, if you look at the verse that comes before it, and that's exactly the kind of thing you ought to do when you're trying to understand what something in Scripture means. You look at the verses before and after, try to understand what the context is, as Kevin said, context matters. Well, right here in verse 13, setting up this statement, uh, we find out that this is actually a conditional statement. When I shut up the heavens, God says, so that there is no rain, 
or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name. So already this promise is being restricted to a situation where you have drought or locusts or plague. Probably not the sort of conditions that usually get introduced when people trot this verse out. But then we keep going. After he says, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Now, this place, this temple, what's being referred to here in God's promise? Jesus is not the answer. What's the promise? What's the location? This is the temple in Jerusalem. This, as, as, we'll, as if, you, if you read the broader context, this is a statement that uh, God makes. God actually appears to Solomon at night, whether in a dream or simply in an apparition or on video feed. He, he appears to Solomon after Solomon has dedicated the temple in Jerusalem that his father David had in mind to build. And he got all kinds of plans together, and he was ready to roll, and God said, no, hang on, it's not going to be you who builds it, it's going to be your son. So Solomon has just dedicated the temple, and he, at at night, gets God coming to him and saying, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will pray and seek my face, if they turn from their wicked wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins and heal their land, but what's happening God is making this promise regarding people praying where? In the temple in Jerusalem. So if you're not praying in the temple in Jerusalem, you don't get to be in on this, right? So that right there should probably take the wind out of the sails. But again, more broadly, if we go back to 11, when Solomon had finished the temple of Yahweh in the royal palace, when he'd succeeded in carrying out All he had in mind to do in the temple of Yahweh in his own place, Yahweh appeared to him at night and said these things that I've said. I've heard your prayer. I've chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. And then after what I've read, he says, starting in verse 17, As for you, if you walk before me as David your father did, if you do all I command, if you observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I've covenanted with David, your father, when I said, you shall never fail to have a man to rule over Israel. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and the commands I've given you, if you go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I'll make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. And though this temple is now so imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and say, why has Yahweh done such a thing to this land and to this temple? And people will answer, well, because they forsook Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt, and they have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That's why he brought all this disaster on them. See, the the context of this promise that God makes is one of recalling the covenant that he made with a particular people at a particular time in a particular place. 
that people is the nation of Israel. That time, of course, was originally on Sinai after he uh, rescued them out of slavery, and then it gets renewed multiple times, and one of the places it gets renewed is right here at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. And when he talks about the laws and the decrees, he's not talking about just sort of basic moral principles. He's talking about specifically his Torah, which he gave to a particular people at a particular time so that they could live in a particular land in the particular way that God had told them they would and could and should have and would have had they been faithful. As we know, that ended up not happening. They did end up being vomited from the land, literally. Well, not literally vomited from the land. It's a really... See, see, there's a place, too. You know, the word gets used, and people will say, I, I literally jumped out of my skin. No, you didn't literally jump out of your skin. Okay. It's really vivid figurative language that is literally in the text. And God said they would be vomited out. Been off for a few weeks, a little rusty here. The point being, they were vomited out of the land. And next week, we get the granddaddy of them all, probably the most abused verse of all of them, which is something that is given, uh, delivered to the people when they have been uh, vomited out of the land and they're uh, in exile. But, but this is a promise given in a specific time, in a specific place, to a specific people, and it does not immediately and automatically transfer to others. Now, where we get a problem with this, specifically as Americans, is that there has been a rich tradition for almost 400 years of a sloppy application of this passage to us. You may remember, back in 1630, John Winthrop, yeah, soon to be. Keith, you're a teacher. I'm sure you do, actually. Uh, he, he was uh, to be the governor of Massachusetts. He led a, 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 a sh- 11 ships of pilgrims, Puritans, that were escaping religious persecution and were seeking to found a new religious community that had uh, nationalistic aspirations in Massachusetts. And so... On board the ship Arbella, he composed a famous sermon that is very, 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 very often referred to in support of this whole idea that we as Americans get to take this promise and a whole lot of them just like it and claim those as our own. So at the, at the conclusion of this sermon... Winthrop says, this, you know, if we do all these things we're supposed to do, he's talking to this group of these, these pilgrims who are coming over uh, along with him, the Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us as his own people and will command a blessing upon us in all our ways so that we shall see much more of his wisdom, power, goodness, and truth than formerly we've been acquainted with. We'll sh- we shall find that the God of Israel is among us. When ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, it will also help that we have guns and they don't. When he shall make us a praise and glory that men shall say of succeeding plantations, may the Lord make it like that of New England. For we must consider that we shall be as a... You can just 
kind of have the, the music coming up behind you as you say, for we must consider that we shall be as a city on a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. And to shut this discourse, this was how back in the day somebody would say, and in conclusion, and to shut this discourse, at which point everybody got excited because that meant they could go to brunch. To shut this discourse with that exhortation of Moses, that faithful servant of the Lord, in his last farewell to Israel in Deuteronomy 30, Beloved, there is now set before us life and death, good and evil, in that we are commanded this day to love the Lord our God and to love one another, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his ordinance and his laws and the articles of our covenant with him that we may live and be multiplied and that the Lord our God may bless us in the land whither we go to possess it. I'll say that again. And that the Lord our God may bless us in the land whither we go to possess it. Now Moses said this to whom? Israel. About what land? The promised land. Did Moses say this to a bunch of pilgrims? Did he say that about North America? No. But if our hearts shall turn away so that we will not obey but shall be seduced and worship other gods, our pleasure and profits and serve them, it's propounded unto us this day. We shall surely perish out of the good land whither we pass over this vast sea to possess it. Therefore, let us choose life that we and our seed may live by obeying his voice and cleaving to him, for he is our life and our prosperity. The idea here, Winthrop was not the only guy who had this idea. A whole lot of the pilgrims had this idea that God was giving his people this land so that they could kind of Uh, try this whole Israel experiment again, but not screw it up this time. That God was calling his people to live in this place, to be his people, to live according to his laws and ordinances, and that God would be their God and they would be his people. In other words, they claimed for themselves the promises that had at one time been given to a particular people at that particular time in that particular place. And they claimed that God was giving it to them at their time in this place that we know as America. So this leads to some problems. The first one I'll mention, just as a preacher, this completely misses the whole point of Winthrop's sermon. And the tragedy is that everybody, when they think about this sermon, they think about this whole city on a hill thing. Most of the sermon is all about how people ought to treat each other in the church and the, the way that that is going to be a blessing. We're actually going to be talking about that a lot in this coming year as we finish up our, our uh, brief series on Romans. Um, <clears throat> but uh, So as a preacher, I'm kind of annoyed that the preacher's main point is lost because everybody focuses on one little thing that happened either during the sermon or in the beginning of it or afterward. But uh, more importantly, the way this cashes out over time is that the, the residual idea, the kind of the, the core of this idea that this is a, a, a chosen land that God has given to a chosen people persists in some really toxic ways, even after people kind of abandon the idea of being dedicated to him and obeying his laws 
Um, so you get eventually in, in American history this idea of manifest destiny, that God has given us this whole land that's ours, and we're supposed to take possession of all of it, never mind the fact that there are some people there who feel the same way about it uh, and, and would not appreciate that. So a great many uh, uh, abuses of, of uh, people and of nations have happened in our own history. Part of our shame as a, history, uh, as a nation uh, is that we have claimed that this whole thing is ours, and because of that, we have treated unjustly other people. Now, as a factual matter, all of us live someplace that somebody else got taken from them. So it's not like this was all that new, but it did have this sort of religious uh, justification for what really was a political project. And, and, and fundamentally, here is the problem, that, that it puts a religious veneer over what is essentially a political or a cultural Endeavor. It claims as it, 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 it essentially baptizes something that is uh, really um, not something that ought to be baptized, something that's essentially secular. And uh, this is bad for us in that it can enable us to focus on the pretty religious veneer and to claim that and to be secure in that when, in fact, the inside of the thing is particle board. It reminds me of what Alexander Pope wrote when he said, a, a little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deep or taste not the Pyrrhean spring. There, shallow drafts intoxicate the brain, and drinking, drinking largely sobers us again. It's true of learning, and it's true of religion. A little religion can be a really, really dangerous thing. And when you when you see what comes of this project, this idea of establishing a, a nation, uh, 150 years after John Winthrop, when you have the founders operating, yes, they make the occasional reference to nature's God, and they. I've even heard people say, well, yes, because they say in the year of our Lord, 1976, that means that the Declaration is a Christian document. No, no, no. This. This is, is so thoroughly washed out that you have a, a little residue of an authentic faith that's left behind, but, but that's not really what it's about. So this is a problem for us because then we can take something that really is a political or a cultural endeavor and, and call it a, something that's essential to our faith. And that, that distracts us from what we're supposed to be about, it also, incidentally, creates a great deal of collateral damage in our culture. And Keith, you and Emily may be interested to, to know about this new study that was done. It turns out that a little bit of religion can be really bad for marriage. Uh, they, they, uh, a journal, an article in the American Journal of Sociology uh, demonstrates that actually there are higher divorce rates in parts of the country that are especially religious. In the, the red states, in the Bible Belt, the rate of divorce is much higher. Now, one of the reasons for that is that culturally there is pressure against kinds of things like cohabitation that are, that are more frequently accepted in other parts of the country. Uh, but but this, this article claims that, that conservative religious beliefs and the social institutions they create, on balance, decrease marital stability 
through the promotion of practices that increase divorce risk in the contemporary United States. For example, by discouraging premarital sex and encouraging early marriage, conservative religious institutions unwittingly contribute to high divorce rates. These authors argue their analysis finds that, quote, communities with large concentrations of conservative Protestants actually produce higher divorce rates than others. Now, here's the twist, though. If you dig further into the data, what you find out is that there's a huge difference between religious affiliation and religious attendance. So if you are living in a place where a whole lot of people are really religious, and if you even identify yourself kind of nominally as part of that, that's not going to help you in terms of giving you a better chance for your marriage to survive. In fact, it, it's likely that you're going to be in worse shape. But if you are actually participating in the life of the church, if you're actually showing up, if you're actually part of a religious community that is going to help you to make it as a married couple, you actually have a much better chance. In multivariate analyses, which is the way they say that they've controlled for all the things like income and, and all that stuff, high-attending conservative Protestant young adults have 34% lower odds of divorcing than do the non-religious. And high-attending Catholic young adults have a 76% lower odds of divorcing than do the non-religious. And I, I would attribute that to the fact that it's generally uh, more common for people who are nominally Catholic to identify as Catholic than for people who are nominally Protestant to do that. But the, the, the point is that if you are simply counting on this sort of thin religious veneer over what is essentially a secular project, if you're counting on that to really get you someplace, it's not. And in fact, it is likely to be counterproductive. But most importantly, the reason that this misinterpretation, this abuse of this passage and the idea that is behind this abusive reading, the reason it's a problem is that it's just fundamentally wrong. It sends us in the wrong direction. And that, uh, Jen, is what the picture on the cover of the bulletin is about. Right? If you are an ancient Israelite, yes, perhaps that slide would have been turned around 90 degrees so that you would end up landing on the solid ground. But if you're not, that slide may not go where you think it should go, where you'd want it to go. It may send you into a deep pit. And that is what happens to all of us when we covet somebody else's calling, when we presume to have somebody else's calling. And this does get back to what we're going to be talking about in this last part of Romans, and, it talks, and, and it's what Winthrop goes into a lot in his sermon. I'd encourage you to read it. Lovely Winthrop sermon on the, umbre on the umbrella, on the Arbella, 1630, a model of Christian charity. He talks about the, the problems that can come when we try to be somebody we're not supposed to be, and when we fail to respect the callings that God has given to others, and we fail to be faithful in the ones that he's given to us. 
there is no good reason to believe, there is no evidence to substantiate the idea that America has been specifically chosen by God. There is certainly no history on the part of our nation of us entering into a soul covenant with the one God of Israel. And even if we had, I think we can agree that we would have qualified for being vomited out well before now. So for us to persist in even evoking this idea, let alone in trying to rely on it, is stupid. It is harmful to our neighbors. It's harmful to us, and it distracts us from what we really ought to be about, which I would say is much more akin to the kind of situation that we're going to be talking about next week. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have given us the callings you have given us as a church, us individually as people, and in whatever cultural arrangements we find ourselves in. We want to be faithful to do the things that you have called us to do, but we also want to be faithful not to arrogate to ourselves what you have given somebody else. We confess that there is in this idea that we can claim this promise in Second Chronicles 7.14. We confess a great deal of arrogance in that. And we pray that you would put us far away from that kind of arrogance. Give us the grace to read the word you have given us as it is, to understand the ways in which we can rightly claim the promises you have made and the ways in which we need to understand them as limited in time and place and to particular recipients. Give us the grace to read well and to read faithfully and to read not for what we would like to find in your word, but to read for what you have given us. And we pray that this would be to your glory and to the edification of your people. In Christ's name, amen.